0: Stories, big guess, the big picture. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge, weekdays 1230 to 3,
1: 770, CHQR.
0: But what happened was Abu Nimr tribe was a local tribe that stood against, they said they stood against Islam, they stood against the state. So they killed the majority of them in Iraq and they bought back the important ones back into Syria. And we were the ones who had to carry out their execution.
1: Okay, so that was from a New York Times podcast earlier this month that caused quite a stir, understandably. That individual, identified as Abu Huzaifa, is a Canadian who's back in Canada and is talking to the New York Times in that podcast about his time spent in Syria with ISIS. And obviously that led to a lot of questions, it was a big issue in the House of Commons question period for several days. Who is this guy? How did he get back into Canada? What is being done about him? Not a lot of answers. Rugmini Kalamaki with the New York Times, who covers ISIS and has been involved in this particular investigation, uh, I was on Twitter today. Now they've released the sixth episode of this uh, Caliphate podcast And this latest episode, she says, details how we fact-checked Abu Huzaifa's story. And she gives some more details on the background here. She says, I'm finally able to reveal that we began speaking to him a year and a half ago. Andy Mills and I first learned of Abu Huzaifa in November 2016. He had left Syria over a year before and had successfully traveled back and forth to Canada and his grandparents' home in Pakistan. Because nobody stopped him at the airport, he assumed he was in the clear. We were the first people outside his family to speak to him about his experience. We interviewed him in person before police and nearly a year before other media. He told us he wanted closure. Not even 12 hours after he left our hotel, CSIS came and banged on his door. We kept in touch with him over the next year and a half, flew back to Canada to interview him on two other occasions. We also spoke to him by phone, and I continue to speak with him now. In that time, everything changed for him. CSIS and RCMP interrogated him. He began to panic. He began sending me increasingly anxious texts asking us to drop the podcast. I told him we couldn't. At one point, he offered via an inter- intermediary to pay us money to drop the podcast. Of course, we would never accept money from a source for any reason, so again, I told him no. The Goose more detail uh, about their interaction with him points out that he is on a no-fly list, on the U.S. no-fly list. Talks about the fact that he's obviously been interrogated by Canadian officials, and also talks about some of the the contradictions in his story. One example being that originally he said that he left before the caliphate was established, but then in another time he told a story about uh, how he remembered candy being hand out the day that uh, al-Baghdadi announced the caliphate. And so there's these uh, contradictions that, that come up in his story. Now, later on in this hour, we're going to hear from uh, Mubin Sheikh, former CSIS undercover operative and expert on extremism. He has been in contact with this individual and has been uh, counseling him and working with him. We're going to hear from Mubin Sheikh coming up uh, after 1.30. Uh, but I wanted to talk a bit more about uh, the legal challenges that CSIS and the RCMP are dealing with when it comes to individuals like this. I also want to touch as well on this story today, this bombing in Mississauga. Uh, Very pleased to welcome back to the program Stephanie Carvin, assistant professor at the Norman Patterson School of International Affairs at Carleton University, focusing on national security and terrorism issues. Stephanie, welcome back to the program. Thanks for joining us.
0: Hey, thanks for having
1: me back. So obviously a lot of concern, first of all, this situation in Mississauga, a bombing at a restaurant, I believe over 15 injured. Fortunately, at this point, it appears no fatalities. We don't know a lot at this point, but but what's important to note about this kind of a situation of what looks to be a deliberate act that maybe we would call terrorism?
0: Well, it has some of the hallmarks of it. I would say... Um, the first thing that I, I, I look at when any kind of incident like this happens is the weapon that was used. Um, and in this case, it seems that they're calling it an IED, which means it was a pretty unsophisticated explosive device, thankfully unsophisticated. So it didn't um, hurt or kill anyone. Uh, well, it hurt uh, 15 individuals, but not too badly and no one was killed. But, you know, still, this appears to be a very serious uh Of violence that was committed. So, um, but you know, two individuals dropping off a wad, it's not a particularly sophisticated kind of attack. and it, the but, you know, I, I we just have to wait because we don't yet know who, in fact, was behind us and why they did it. Was this an act of criminal mischief? Was this actually an act of violent extremism uh, for uh, a particular for furthering an ideology, which actually would make it a terror attack? But we, we just don't know. We don't know if it's some kind of revenge. We don't we just don't know. So it's like I think this is what. Has to happen. They, the most important thing is they need to find these individuals to make sure they don't um, carry out any subsequent um, incidents like this. I think that's absolutely 100 percent the most pressing point at this, regardless of whatever the ideological motivation is. We want to make sure that these people don't act again.
1: Yeah, indeed. You know, it's interesting. We spoke recently about this this question of terrorism, how we define terrorism. And the the definition is not incumbent on on method per se. But I I think the fact that this was a bombing, I think a lot of people associate the two, that, that bombing is terrorism. Terrorism is bombing. But is that necessarily the case?
0: Exactly. So, you know, we've seen, for example, um, the mafia, for example, will engage in bombings, um, revenge attacks. There was a case, uh, out in Western Canada recently where an individual was trying to get back at his wife or ex-wife and he was using a bomb. Um, so, yeah, I mean, there's, there's multiple actors will use these kinds of weapons. Um, and that's why indeed we do want to be cautious. Um, but, you know, there's, there's no question that using a bomb definitely sends a, a certain kind of message.
1: Indeed. Well, as you say, we'll we'll await further details on that situation. Let's talk about this question of of ISIS returnees, which is uh, something that's getting a lot of attention in Ottawa, in particular because of some of the the work being done by The New York Times, uh, about this one individual who has spoken to a New York Times reporter about things that he did while uh, over in the so-called caliphate, although there's been some contradictions in his story. We learned today from this New York Times reporter that this individual has been questioned by CSIS, has been interrogated by CSIS, as he put it. I mean, we should expect that, though, shouldn't we?
0: Um, yeah, I mean, I, I think that's correct, and I think this person should be, should be tracked. It's definitely, um, you know, we've, we've since seen um, Stuart Bell, who's a reporter with uh, Global, has uh, been able to successfully um, get access to the the policies that the government has. So when individuals are, you know, when, when governments learn of individuals who are, in fact, overseas, they learn about how they, um, you know, they, they learn about them often, because when they go overseas and they join these groups, um, often their documents are confiscated um, because they don't want them to escape. And, and also they can potentially pass on those documents onto individuals so they, who they, they want to actually go abroad and conduct attacks. So either way, they often lose their documents. So they'll have to actually, if they want to come back, they'll have to actually go to a Canadian uh, embassy first so often you'll see you know there's often rcmp officers that are stationed overseas so um and and potentially a a CSIS officer could go over as well and and uh speak with this individual so they might speak to them in the actual um area that -hmm. they are um and then when they come back they're often greeted you know if they expect them to come back they'll be greeted by cbsa there was um in those documents it was revealed that uh there were, uh, there's sometimes the RCMP can send an officer on a plane to make sure that individual doesn't actually harm anyone uh, on their return. So, you know, they are actively and closely monitored when they do come back to Canada uh, once the government does learn about them.
1: I guess so we should clarify that. I mean, if, if someone is back in Canada, would, would, I mean, that would preclude CSIS from, or would it? I mean, would CSIS be able to, to interrogate this individual, or would that fall to the RCMP?
0: Um, it, it could sometimes be both, right? So that's when you need to have a kind of deconfliction. So you have the uh, – basically what's been set up is the uh, National Security Joint Operations Center uh, here in Ottawa. And what they do is they try to work with um, – I mean, there's a lot of acronyms today that's like the often the integrated national uh, security enforcement teams, the INSETs, which are often – which are in the major cities in Canada. Um, and they try to coordinate to make sure that, you know, inter- like, you know, who has the lead on what individual and, and for what reason. So, yeah, both the CSIS and the RCMP can uh, interview a person, but they would be doing it for very different reasons. A CSIS officer would be interviewing someone just to gather information and intelligence about what that person had done and if they perhaps knew about other Canadians that were overseas, whereas an RCMP officer would also would often do so with a view to... Um, Uh, perhaps gathering information that could lead to criminal prosecution. So there'd be a difference between the two. But yeah, absolutely, you could have um, both uh, try and stage some kind of intervention. Right.
1: Because, you know, there's certainly those wondering, and I mean, it includes the the opposition, as we've heard in the House of Commons, and others are saying, look, I mean, if if we've got someone in Canada who admits to going over and, and fighting with ISIS, which in and of itself is a crime, why are we charging this individual?
0: That was a great question, and it actually has to do with the peculiarities of Canadian law in this area. Um, it's actually, ironically, easier to charge someone for trying to join ISIS than prosecuting someone who has gone and joined ISIS and then come back. Um, that's just yeah. the reality of the law. Because the problem is just being a member of a terrorist group actually isn't a crime in and of itself. You actually have to provide some kind of support to that group in order to be prosecuted. So, you know, if you just sit on, on your Facebook page and say, Yeah, I'm ISIS, well, guess what? Thesis might come up and show your door. But if you haven't done anything, there's no grounds to actually, you know, send you to the police or have you arrested or anything like that. Um, so the, the problem is you actually have to prove that the individual conducted the attack or uh, or conducted an attack um, or engaged in some kind of terrorism offense overseas. So, and that becomes really hard for a number of reasons. One, um, we actually don't have good, the, the ability to collect court evidence in a conflict zone. Right. Like we, yeah. we, it's very you know you kill someone in Canada. You know, you, you can bring all your forensics in, you can bring all that. You can assess who did it. You can't do that in a complex. zone. it becomes very, very hard. Or, you know, even if you were just the cook or you were the driver or whatever, um, you know, how um, how would you prove that this individual actually engaged in those kinds of activities? Um, you know, they may have posted about it on social media. They may have said they did so on a podcast, which is certainly uh, the case that we're talking about here. But that's not enough in court. Right. Because, you know, the guy can just turn around and say, oh, well, you know, so it was a journalist and she, she wouldn't leave me alone. And I just wanted to tell her about what was happening because I wanted to get rid of her. And, and, you know, so it made up a story and then she went away. And that was I thought that was going to be the end of it. Um, and, you know, so that you can say that in court. And frankly, um, it's not to say that you're going to be believed. But is there evidence that shows the contrary? And in most cases, there just simply isn't. So, I mean, I guess just to get back to this, um, uh, the final point here is that other countries have gotten around this problem by um, what they've done is they've granted their Minister of Foreign Affairs, and I'm thinking here specifically of Australia, they've granted their Minister of Foreign Affairs the ability to declare certain zones as under terrorist control. And if you travel to those zones, it is a crime, and it is upon you, the person who traveled there, to prove that you weren't there for a terrorist reason. So we could probably pass a similar law to that in Canada. Um, We haven't done so yet. Um, Like uh, The the Conservatives in 2015 during the election, they talked about a similar but not exact kind of law. But as of now, we we simply don't have one.
1: Well, but as you noted, though, we we are able to target those who are intending to leave. And we, we have seen charges laid against individuals who have not yet left the country but were intending to do so. Why is that easier?
0: Um, Because you can gather the evidence here in Canada, right? So you can actually gather the evidence that someone was intending to travel overseas for the purpose of joining a terrorist organization. That was a law that was passed, I believe, in 2014. It was actually a bill that was introduced in the Senate um and it criminalized traveling to uh, overseas for the purpose of joining a terrorist group and that was actually to address an, another loophole that we had which was you could only stop someone for, from flying if you felt that they posed a danger to the aircraft and the problem was with the foreign fighters is they didn't pose a, a, a risk to the aircraft. Because they actually wanted to get to the destination they were going to, right. right? They didn't want to blow up the plane. They actually wanted to get to Syria. So we had no grounds to stop them. So in 2014, through the Senate, there was a, a piece of legislation that basically made it a crime to uh, for to travel to a country for the purpose of joining a terrorist group. Now we can build that case. We can build that evidence here in Canada. But what we can't do is, um, ironically, is we can't um, sh- unless you have proof about what someone actually did while they were overseas it becomes very very hard to prosecute look i understand like this sounds completely insane and i think canadians are rightfully scratching their head going well why is this not being dealt with and i think it is something that the the current government does need to, to look into because frankly going overseas and joining a terrorist group is wrong it's something we should definitely be punishing canadians um You know, for doing and uh, because it's just not only is it unsafe for Canadians when these individuals come back, but also, you know, we don't want Canadians going overseas to kill people.
1: Well, but you raised the point about coming back. I mean, could we simply wash our hands of these individuals and prevent them from returning in the first place?
0: So there was some talk about doing that. Um, I think the problem is it just wouldn't stand up under the charter. You can't strip someone of their citizenship. Um, You might be able to revoke their passport. Um, and, and, uh, you know, so they can't actually travel on it ever again. But the problem is, is that if they demand to come home as a Canadian citizen and it's right there in the charter, you actually have the right to come back. And so, and the RCMP has, you know, in in the documents I talked about at the beginning of this interview, the ones that were, um, obtained by Stuart Bell, they make it very clear that the, this is something that the RCMP feels it is legally obliged to do under the Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedoms.
1: Very challenging uh, indeed. So uh, we'll leave it there, Stephanie. always do appreciate the insight. Thanks so much for making some time for us here today.
0: Hey, thanks
1: for having me on. Hey, that's uh, national security terrorism expert Stephanie Carvin, assistant professor at the Norman Patterson School of International Affairs at Carleton University. As mentioned, coming up after one we we'll hear from Mubin Sheikh former CSIS undercover operative deradicalization counterterrorism expert about his own interactions with this particular individual. Nine seven four eight two five five is a number. We're back with more right after this. All right. So how worried should we be about Abba Huzaifa and what should be done with Abba Huzaifa? I, I think first and foremost, CSIS and the RCMP need to know about him, know where he is, have conversations with him. Might be someone we need to keep an eye on for obvious reasons. Look, he made a decision to go over there, and I think he needs to be accountable for that decision. But if we're not going to charge him with a crime, then where does that leave us? I think the idea of rehabilitating someone like this might not fly with a lot of Canadians, but maybe that's kind of where we're at. Well, joining us for some thoughts on how we need to approach this and some more thoughts on this particular individual. Very pleased to welcome back to the program, Mubeen Sheik, former CSIS undercover operative, deradicalization, counterterrorism expert. Mubeen, thanks so much for joining us here today. Appreciate this.
2: Hey, thanks for having me.
1: So um, this individual, who we know as uh, Abu Husefa, you have been in contact with him now for about a year and a half. Is that right? That's right. How did that come about, are you able to say?
2: Yeah, it's actually uh, Rukmini Kalimaki, who's uh, who's doing the podcast um, via the New York Times. Uh, She actually met with him, did the recordings with him, and then introduced him to me.
1: And so what was your impression of this guy?
2: Well, I mean, I had to take, uh, you know, his case or his file uh, with, you know, with the information that I had at the time, which was... Uh, this guy was supposedly uh, an ISIS returnee um and so of course uh, I went into you know my my mindset of just making sure that okay well where is he on the spectrum uh, in in the sense that when I mean spectrum I mean you know is he uh, does he feel guilty does he feel remorse i mean does he does he still have these extremist views is he having um, nightmares you know to to kind of for PTSD because I you know, that creates a whole other subset of issues that could arise. Um, you know, I looked at all these things um, uh, taken together.
1: Well, and it, it's a difficult thing to approach, isn't it? Because, you know, in understanding what someone believes or trying to discern what it is they did over there, it's, it's not the kind of thing that you, you can just ask them flat out because you might not get an honest answer, right?
2: Well, I mean, when it came to the crimes, I specifically told him not to admit any crimes to me. I I need to protect myself as well. Um, Lukmini herself did not admit any crimes uh, that he admitted to in the podcast, just told everyone, you know, listen to the podcast. So uh, me, like many others, after hearing the podcast, uh, were quite shocked and quite... uh, I mean, I wasn't that surprised, you know, in my estimation of him. I figured... Is this guy is making it all up? I mean, did he go and do some things but not all things? You know, it's impossible to verify this, but, I mean, you know, whatever I could get from him, uh, less, you know, what he did and more what he's thinking, you know, where his mindset is now because the, the overall an arching, overarching objective must always be public safety, right?
1: Why did he go in the first place then?
2: Well, I mean, a lot of these guys, you know, they they saw what this so-called caliphate was promising, you know, was this, um, you know, extremist utopia, you know, where they'd all live happily ever after. Uh, you know, and, and it came, I mean, uh, especially the time that he went. He claimed to have gone early 2014. That, that turned out to be uh, a lie. Uh, he had gone uh, September 2014. So, uh, you know, ISIS was already on the scene, so to speak, you know, from late 2012, really, or from really early 2012, but throughout 2013, and then it's in 2014 when they declared their so-called caliphate. So somebody who is, you know, watching this stuff, seeing this stuff, uh, and then wanting to go, I mean, um, there are really only two reasons. I mean, two basic reasons. I mean, there's many reasons, but... The main one is the ideological one, right? A lot of these extremist-minded young Muslims have this utopian view, right, of of how the world should be and what an Islamic state is supposed to look like. Uh, So there's that, and that's what hooked him on that. And secondly was uh, Assad, right? The Assad regime is killing all these Muslim civilians and citizens. Um, You know, the call went out to basically join groups that would be fighting, um, fighting them. So uh, I think those two things taken together is what duped him to go over. Yeah.
1: So what led him to come back?
2: Well, like a lot of other stories, uh, these guys go over and realize it's not like what they showed us on the brochure. Um, yeah. They realize that these guys are, they're bad people. I mean, they have bad personalities. Their interpersonal skills are not good. And I'm talking about, you know, ISIS uh, like extremists in general never mind you know arab types uh, who are over there so i think he, he he realized very quickly i mean his claim was that he felt he was the oppressor right he was uh he claimed he was a police officer so i guess on his rounds uh he felt that you know he was in fact a bad guy and and this is consistent with what a lot of uh foreign fighters felt when they got over there thinking that okay they're going to welcome us with open arms because we're coming here to fight the, the Assad regime but the problem is when they started you know enforcing their laws and forcing themselves onto the people you know the, the Syrians who were there were like you know you canadian pakistani guy are going to come here and tell me about islam so these sorts of things made them feel that maybe this isn't what i thought it was
1: well, and has that become a question of being disillusioned on the tactics, or is it deeper than that? Do they become disillusioned on the ideology itself?
2: That's a very good question, actually, um, because it, it can go both ways, right? For yeah. some, um, I mean, this is what we would call disengagement, where a person still believes the views or still retains those views, but doesn't act out on those views. And then you get what is called de-radicalization, which is the full cognitive shift that You no longer believe in the ideology and you certainly won't follow through on the tactics. So for, uh, this is where, you know, it vacillates between these two depending on what kind of person you're dealing with. I think this guy is in the category of a a halfway point between disengagement and de-radicalization. So, um, you know, he he doesn't have all the ideas that ISIS does, but there are still enough. There are still a few that are are problematic. Some which could allow a person to to fall back into uh, violent behavior. And so that's kind of why I continue to maintain uh, caution and concern over him. But because he has moved away from some positions is why I say he is a candidate for at least a candidate for de-radicalization. So um, but again, I mean, even me saying what I'm saying, it just illustrates that we, we need to this is why we need to keep eyes on these guys at all times.
1: Yeah, to just say, oh, he's he's fine and let him be on his way, probably not. You can't, exactly.
2: You can't can't know that in a year and a half.
1: Now, by the way, this guy's still in his early 20s, I think. Is that right?
2: That's right. He's uh, 22 currently.
1: And, I mean, do we know whether there's any kind of active investigation? I mean, it's possible that that he may still face charges at some point.
2: Absolutely. I mean, there is certainly an active investigation. And I kind of wanted to make the point of for people to just calm down a bit. I mean, it's not like, you know, the authorities are just letting this guy run around do what he wants. Um, There is an active investigation. I mean, whether, you know, the agencies will confirm it or not, I'm telling you there is. Um, And, you know, they're, they're, you know, they are definitely looking into these allegations. Now, the thing is, is, you know, he he recanted, um, you know, to the CBC after the podcast came out. Uh, You know, he did say that if if it comes to it, I'm going to say that it was all made up. So that's not good on his part. But uh, I did believe and I do believe that there are elements of exaggeration in his story. Uh, And so that's going to be something for, you know, especially because it is now to that point of there is, you know, allegations of or you know, confessions of murder. This now, it's, it totally falls into the realm of the RCMP, and this is not anything that I deal with. So, you know, yeah. I'm going to leave it to them to to deal with it. But the main thing to know is that I, I assure you they have eyes on it.
1: Yeah. Well, and, and understandably so. Um, part of the challenge, yeah. though, is is... You know, in, in numbers, and we we hear conflicting numbers on how many returnees yeah. there currently are in Canada. What, what's your sense of
2: approximately the most what we're accurate? Looking? Yeah, the most accurate approximation of ISIS returnees is fifteen to twenty. I, fifteen I mean, to yeah. twenty. How do we and go about is, determining uh, that? Yeah, so it's interesting because, uh, like you said, there was a lot of confusion over the numbers. Uh, the numbers first came out in 2015 uh, with the uh, then CSIS director under the Harper government uh, putting out the the large bulk of numbers. It was like 100 and something uh, those who left for extremist purposes. OK. And then it then it gave back another number of returnees. I can't remember at the time if it was 60 or, or yeah, what it was. Something like
1: that. Yeah, I remember
2: that. Uh, so now that is, so now in fact, now I'm gonna, and I am I know I'm on the record and I'm telling you these are 100% accurate numbers because I heard them from the CSIS representative himself uh, twice, uh, just two days ago. Uh, 250 is the total number of all individuals who left. Uh, so... The left and returnees. So the number they gave of extremist travelers who went 100 plus, that's that's not including the or the the returnee number they gave does not include individuals who came back from that 100 plus number. So the total number of travelers and returnees regarding all extremist purposes is 250. Regarding Iraq and Syria specifically is a hundred. So. Uh, So when they say returnees, we keep hearing, you know, 80 or I don't even know what the numbers are now. Um, That is for all extremist purposes. And, I mean, there's a difference with how thesis classifies a returnee versus the RCMP. So the RCMP will say somebody who tried to go but failed, that's a returnee. Or somebody who went, got caught at the border and was deported by Turkey or whatever, that's a returnee. So in our estimation, we probably wouldn't consider them a returnee uh, you know, for our purposes. So there is a disparity in, in the numbers still. Uh, I think uh, I'm pretty sure they're trying to resolve that number now because the minister has the wrong numbers. He's been giving the wrong numbers. We are reacting on the basis of wrong numbers. So it's extremely important to get the right numbers out. I'll leave the, uh, you know, returnees for other extremist purposes on the side for a second, because it could include somebody who, you know, uh, is a Hezbollah supporter, went to Lebanon, gave some money to an uncle, and then that money went over to Hezbollah, and then that person came back. That's a returnee, right? So there's different grades, if you will. Um, I think the main thing, at least I'm focusing on, is the 15 to 20 ISIS returnees that we have. Mm -hmm. And I want to note, even out of that 15 to 20, um, a large number are women and children. And uh, a smaller percentage are actual male fighting age returnees. Uh, and so that's really the concern that, that, you know, that we are on right now. Some have been charged. I mean, there was a you know, case of Kevin Muhammad. Uh, Kevin Mohammed went for like a couple of weeks. He dipped his toe in. He was linked to an al-Qaeda group. He got a peace bond, right? He got arrested. He went through the process. So where evidence for that exists, Prosecute, I mean, charges will be laid. I mean, it's not like the RCMP are thinking, ah, oh, it's just an ISIS guy, you know, we can't really charge, you know, let's just leave him alone. I, I assure you they're not doing that. If evidence is, is available, they will lay the charge. And in the case of Abu Uzayfa, the problem is, is that uh, his Canadian documents, travel documents, don't show travel outside of Pakistan. And so the argument is that he used uh, his Pakistani ID Uh, to travel over. And so the question now is, I'm sure the RCMP are looking into whether the Pakistanis are going to hand over that information. Um, And so, you know, um, that will determine if charges will be laid or not. So this is the the, the period that we are in. Let
1: me just ask you this, Mubin: here. I mean, are are we at a turning point? Are we now dealing with the aftermath of of this caliphate and it's more a question of its former members and returnees? Or are we still seeing uh, on the recruitment side and and people looking to, to go over there?
2: The number of travelers has dropped significantly. Um, I mean, it, it actually it correlated to uh, whenever coalition was increasing their airstrikes. Uh, so, of course, all these guys, they want to play the part, but they don't want to play the part in full. Uh, so the recruitment, the recruitment remains, uh, you know, up and down. I mean, uh, you know, the, the core issues that give rise to extremism and terrorism in the world, the ideology, the, the grievances because of wars, uh, dictatorships; those ingredients still remain, and so the output—that is, recruitment to extremism—will remain the same. Um, but the traveler situation has dropped significantly, and yes, for in you know, for a large part, uh, what we are dealing with is the aftermath uh, of this failed Caliphate project.
1: Well, we'll leave it there, Mubin. Always great talking to you. Thanks so much for making some time for us here today. Really appreciate this.
2: Pleasure. Thanks for having
1: me. Take care. You too. Ubi and Sheikh, uh, de-radicalization, counterterrorism expert, his thoughts on this individual and others like him. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge, starting at 1230 on News Talk 770 Calgary.